my name is Nico Schrijver. Uh, I'm professor of international law at Leiden University and the director of the Grotius Center for International Legal Studies. The topic of my lecture is about the international law of sustainable development. We are at a crucial juncture in moving our global society towards a sustainable future. Will we be able to curb climate change, stop the loss of biological diversity, reduce high levels of poverty, or will we fail? The question is equally important for the industrialized and the developing world. In the North, we still maintain many unsustainable practices. We tend to operate structurally beyond the limits of what has been called the environmental utilization space. That is the regenerative capacity of nature and the capacity of our natural environment to serve as a basis for the supply of natural resources and the absorption of waste. And of course, the developing world has made impressive development gains in recent decades, uh, raising life expectancy, halving uh, infant mortality rates, improving access to education, better safe drinking water. Many countries, however, are still caught in a vicious circle of environmental degradation and a shrinking area of fertile land widespread unemployment, growing inequalities and deepening of poverty. Hence, any strategy to pursue sustainable development must address simultaneously economic, environmental and social concerns. During the past 35 years, various global conferences on these issues took place. Most notably, the Stockholm Conference, that is the UN Conference on the Protection of the Human Environment, the Rio Conference in 1992, that is the Conference on Environment and Development, and the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg in 2002. I do not subscribe to the cynical view that such summits are merely media circuses. On the contrary, I believe that they have often served as a catalyst, a catalyst in identifying the core of problems and the direction in which solutions may be sought, as well as providing platforms for dialogue, more or less the town meetings of our world. Occasionally, they can even perform a quasi-legislative function in the sense that they draw up norms and that they adopt non-binding but legally relevant recommendations which are often the forerunners of national legislation and international treaties. It is my proposition that the Rio Summit, the UN Conference on Environment and Development, performed all of these functions and can therefore in retrospect be considered as a success. The last principle of the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development calls for the further development of international law in the field of sustainable development. And Agenda 21, also a document from the Rio Conference, adds that this should entail, I quote, a balanced and comprehensive 
international law on sustainable development, unquote. Now, from the context in which the concept of sustainable development has been used, it follows that the term sustainable development aims to embody both the cause of promoting development and of preserving the environment, and taking into account the interests of presence as well as future generations of humankind. Now, more than 20 years after the Brundtland report, more than 15 years after this Rio summit, it is time to draw up the balance. What is meant by the concept of sustainable development? What about its inception in international law? What has been the fate of efforts to integrate, if not marry, the international law of development and international environmental law? How have they fared individually? Have their main principles and rules entered the corpus of international law in terms of treaty law, customary international law and judicial decisions? Or have they remained mainly confined to academic literature? to political documents, to soft law at best. And what is the impact of the increased status of human rights on sustainable development discourse in international law? These are the questions I wish to address in this lecture. So in the next section of my lecture, I would like to explore the concept of sustainable development. During the 1960s, the global extent of resource depletion and environmental degradation came to the fore. The growing international awareness was closely associated with the inspiring book of Rachel Carson entitled Silent Spring and with the Club of Rome report on the limits to growth, as well as with the long-term harmful effects of nature of products containing pesticides such as DDT with tanker collisions, with excessive economic growth. It was realized that the human environment as such was at stake. People began to see the world as an entity, as spaceship Earth, rather than as an area split up into a number of sovereign territorial entities. It affected our conceptions of state sovereignty. At the same time, it became clear that the environmental problems of developing countries and industrialized countries differed essentially. The Stockholm Declaration on the Protection of the Human Environment, adopted in 1972, was the first major political document to proclaim that improvement and defense of the human environment had become an imperative goal of humankind to be pursued, of course, together with other fundamental international public policy goals, such as peace and security, worldwide economic and social progress. The declaration emphasized the correlation between development and environment. Other relevant uh, documents include the World Charter of Nature and the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The World Charter of Nature was adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1982 and it resulted from an IUCN, an NGO document uh, entitled The World Conservation Strategy of 1980. 
As a matter of fact, the strategy was the first main instrument to use the word sustainable in the context of the utilization of natural resources. It also spoke of sustainable benefit to present generations while maintaining the potential of the biosphere to meet the needs and aspirations of future generations. Hence, we have here an early version of what was later coined as the principle of intergenerational equity. The 1982 Law of the Sea Convention includes an entire part on protection of the marine environment. And its opening article affirms in concise terms, I quote, states have the obligation to protect and preserve the marine environment. Furthermore, the convention of course elaborates specific rules for carrying out that obligation, for example by limiting fisheries to an allowable catch to be based on the principle of maximum sustainable yield and by prescribing measures to prevent, reduce and control pollution. It is also interesting to note the convention's integrated holistic approach reflected in the desire to settle all issues relating to the law of the sea because i quote the problems of ocean space are closely interrelated and need to be considered as a whole unquote yet it was the world commission on environment and development commonly known after the name of its chairperson Madame Brundtland from Norway, which gave the term sustainable development a more general application and that was done in its final report entitled Our Common Future, published in 1987. And the report aimed to integrate environmental and developmental concerns, and I quote, to ensure that development meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. End of the quotation of the definition of sustainable development of the Brundtland Commission. The 1992 Rio Declaration on Environment and Development endorsed this concept of sustainable development And so did the uh, Agenda 21 and the environmental treaties adopted in Rio. The Rio Declaration provides in its article, in its principle uh, one, I quote, human beings are at the center of concerns for sustainable development. They are entitled to a healthy and productive life in harmony with nature. And the declaration also reiterates the right to development, which had been the subject of a rather controversial declaration of the General Assembly of 1986. And it gives recognition to the concept of intergenerational equity. In various places, the declaration indicates that environmental preservation and the promotion of development are interrelated and that an integrated approach is called for. For example, the Rio Declaration plainly states that, I quote, 
environmental protection shall constitute an integral part of the development process, unquote. Now, what about the inception of sustainable development in international law? That is the next section of my lecture. The phrase sustainable development, as launched in Rio, has found recognition in international legal instruments remarkably quickly. Various environmental treaties have incorporated it, and they include the Climate Change Convention and the Biological Diversity Convention, the Anti-Desertification Convention, but it also features in economic treaties, such as the World Fisheries Convention of 1995, the Agreement of 1995 to establish the World Trade Organization, and let me quote from the preamble of the WTO agreement, uh, namely, I quote, optimal use of the world's resources in accordance with the objective of sustainable development. That is one of the key objectives of the WTO. Reference may also be made to the prominent place of sustainable development as an objective in the law of various regional associations. For example, the Treaty on European Union, as now hopefully amended with the Lisbon Treaty in 2007, provides, I quote, that the Union shall work for the sustainable development of Europe, based on balanced economic growth and price stability, a highly competitive social market economy, aiming at full employment and social progress, and a high level of protection and improvement of the quality of the environment. The Lisbon Treaty also stipulates the integration of environmental protection requirements in all Union policies and activities, I quote, with a view to promoting sustainable development. And similarly, in the development cooperation part, uh, it is stipulated that the Union shall take account of the objectives of development cooperation in the policies that it implements which are likely to affect developing countries. These new European Union objectives are a clear policy response to the call for sustainable development as adopted at the Rio summit in 1992. Sustainable development is also an objective in the development cooperation treaties between the European Union and as many as 79 developing countries in Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific. The latest one, the so-called Cotonou Partnership Agreement, revised in 2005, clearly links the pursuance of sustainable development to poverty reduction. Furthermore, the sustainable utilization and management of natural resources are identified as one of the three cross-cutting issues, alongside with gender issues and with institutional capacity building. It is interesting to note that sustainable development and related concepts also feature in a number of international judicial decisions of the post-Rio period. Of course, reference should first of all be made to the International Court of Justice. 
in its advisory opinion to the UN General Assembly on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons, the court made reference to the Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, especially its Principle 24 on the protection of the environment in times of armed conflict. The court stated that, I quote, the environment is not an abstraction, but represents the living space, the quality of life, and the health of human beings, including generations unborn. Unquote. Moreover, the court concluded the existence of the general obligation of states to ensure that activities within their jurisdiction and control respect the environment of other states or of areas beyond national control is part of the corpus of customary international law relating to the environment. So that is an important finding. Moreover, in its judgment in the case between Slovakia and Hungary, the so-called Kapsikovo-Nakimaros project, the court elaborated specifically on the principle of sustainable development. Let me quote from it. New norms and standards have been developed, set forth in a great number of instruments during the last two decades. Such new norms have to be taken into consideration and such standards given proper weight, not only when states contemplate new activities, but also when continuing activities begun in the past. This need to reconcile development with protection of the environment is aptly expressed in the concept of sustainable development in the words of the court. Judge Viramantri, in his separate opinion, went a few steps further by stating that sustainable development is, I quote from Viramantri, is part of modern international law by reason not only of its inescapable logical necessity, but also by reason of its wide and general acceptance by the global community reaffirming that in the area of international law there must be both development and environmental protection and that neither of these rights can be neglected. Second, reference can be made to the pronouncements by the WO dispute settlement body, most notably in the United States import prohibition of certain shrimp and shrimp products case, commonly just known as the shrimp turtles case between on the one hand the United States and on the other India, Malaysia, Pakistan and Thailand. And in its interpretation of the get exception clause uh, included in article 20, which permits in deviation of the get rules the taking of measures relating to the conservation of exhaustible natural resources, the WTO appellate body referred to, I quote, contemporary concerns of the community of nations about the protection and conservation of the environment and to the fact that the preamble of the WTO, as we discussed earlier, explicitly acknowledges the objective of sustainable development, a concept which, in the view of the appellate body, I quote, has been generally accepted 
as integrating economic and social development and environmental protection, unquote. Although the dispute settlement body ultimately decided that the American measures constituted unjustifiable discrimination, uh, the, the various references to sustainable development and to legitimate environmental concerns differ from earlier decisions of CATS panels in the 1990s, most notably the so-called Tuna Dolphin panels between Mexico and the United States. Of course, this is just a brief review of significant recent developments in international law relating to, develop, uh, to sustainable development, yet we can conclude that sustainable development has become an established objective of the international community and a concept which gained remarkably quick an established status in international law. This is not to say that its contents is clear, is always crystal clear, but it has got now a strong normative status. That raises the question, to what extent can we now observe the emergence of an international law of or an international law for sustainable development? As we could note in the recent past, the evolution of the international law of development and of international environmental law. That is the topic um, of my next section of the lecture. Study of the current state of international law concerned with sustainable development leaves us one with a mixed picture. On the one hand, steady progress can be noted as regards the consolidation, the further development, the implementation of international environmental law. But on the other, international law and organization relating to development has practically come to a standstill. In the field of international environmental law, considerable activity can be noted indeed. And international environmental law is nowadays certainly an established chapter of international law. A host of new multilateral and regional environmental treaties have been concluded since the Rio summit in 1992. As were a number of economic treaties with strong environmental components, such as the Energy Charter Treaty adopted in 1994, the World Fisheries um, Convention in 1995. And I have already referred to the incorporation of sustainable development as an objective in the founding charter of the World Trade Organization as well as in European Union law. Uh, I also referred earlier to the Cotonou Partnership Agreement, uh, recently revised in 2005, which also incorporates sustainable development. But we can also refer to other regional associations, um, such as Mercosur in Latin America, the uh, new constitution of the African Union in, adopted in the year 2000, and also the recent charter of ASEAN adopted in December 2007. And when studying such documents, we can note increasingly that the Rio principles are being included. Uh, and the same goes for national legal instruments, 
and, and special reference should be made here to the elements of the precautionary principle, the polluter pays principle, the environmental impact assessment obligation, the principle of public participation. In addition, we can also note that in various countries the judiciary has been active in protecting the environment, often with reference to international legal instruments, including the Rio Declaration. So far about international environmental law. What about the international law of development? In the UN Charter, international economic and social cooperation among nations features as one of the objectives of the organization. Uh, I can refer here to articles 55 and 56 of the Charter. As a result of the formulation of human rights and as a result of the decolonization process, the promotion of the development of developing countries soon got an even more prominent place as among the objectives of the United Nations. And this movement gave rise to the emergence of new international law principles. And let me just mention the key ones. Number one is the permanent sovereignty of natural resources. A second principle is economic self-determination. Self in the sense uh, that nations have the right to freely choose their own economic and social system. The third one is the duty to cooperate for world economic development, in particular the development of developing countries. A fourth one is the entitlement of developing countries to development assistance and to transfer of technology. A fifth one is preferential treatment of developing countries in international trade. Number six could be identified as participatory equality in international economic decision making and we know from the voting structure in the World Bank and the IMF that that is still a far cry. And the last one I would like to mention, especially from the field of the law of the sea but increasingly also in other areas, that is the principle of the common heritage of humankind. While these principles vary considerably in terms of their legal status and their application in practice, they share the common objective of seeking to strengthen the position of developing countries in international relations and in enhancing their opportunities for development. They gave rise to what was alternatively called an international law of development or international development law or more purposely, uh, the international law for development. A number of new multilateral treaties were concluded, which embodied some of the above-mentioned principles. Uh, examples include the 1974 Code of Conduct on Liner Conferences, the 1980 Agreement on the Establishment of a Common Fund for Commodities, the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, to which I referred earlier, as well as the successive Lomé Conventions between the European Community and these countries in Africa, the Caribbean and the Pacific, uh, during, concluded during the period 1975-2000. However, 
progress proved to be difficult, partly due to external constraints, but also partly due to internal factors within the developing countries themselves. The effort of the resolutions on a new international economic order adopted in the 70s to enforce a breakthrough through confrontation rather than cooperation failed. In the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s and 1990s, more pragmatic strategies were adopted but they also remained with limited success. While all these documents and instruments are certainly useful, their impact on the development opportunities of developing countries should not be overestimated. At the same time, we can note fortunately that some developing countries managed to do remarkably well, especially the so-called newly industrializing countries and quite a number of Latin American countries. And of course, this also led to a review of their status of uh, beneficiary countries under preferential or difference, differential treatment, especially in trade and money and finance. And this gave rise to the emergence of a new principle. Uh, that is the principle of graduation and integration of well-off developing countries. And we can note the incorporation of that principle, especially in the field of international trade, but also in the field of international financial law. As to developments in the field of the international law of development during the post-Rio period, uh, we can only make reference to the belated entry into force in 1994 of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, supplemented, but in a way also eroded by the 1994 supplementary agreement relating to Part 11. And we can make reference to the adoption of the agreement establishing the World Trade Organizations. Uh, we can make reference to the Cotonou Agreement and some South-South cooperation efforts, uh, especially in, in, in Latin America, Mercosur, in Africa, most notably the African Union, in Asia, I referred already to ASEAN. Huh? All of these instruments are useful. At the same time, we can note that sometimes there is a, a return to purely equal treatment of developed and developing treaties, especially under the pressure of um, the newly established World Trade Organization. For example, to refer once again to the development cooperation arrangements between the European Union and almost 80 developing countries, we can now note in the year 2008 that the principle of preferential treatment is being replaced after a transition period by WTO compatible economic partnership agreements, so-called EPAs, which aim at progressively establishing free trade areas between Europe and groups of developing countries without any reference to preferential treatment. So there is an erosion of such a key principle of international development law. I should report that least developed countries will continue to receive special and differential treatment 
among other things, under the so-called Everything But Arms initiative, which entitles least developed countries to export whatever they want to the markets of industrial nations, especially the European Union, with the exception of arms and military materials. While we, while we can still observe a commitment to assist developing countries in their development and in coping with the potential negative aspects of globalization, in general terms we cannot but note the erosion of some traditional principles of the law of international development cooperation. Equality is increasingly being replaced by conditionality. Partnership by take it or leave it. Preferential treatment by the principle of graduation and integration into, among others, the WTO regime. And by common but differentiated obligations in international environmental law regimes. This, what I call unbalanced development of international law, concerned with sustainable development, and the lack of normative structure for international economic relations between developing countries and developed countries, and particularly the absence of a human face for the international economic order, are major causes of concern. And they call for a better integration of international environmental law, international economic law relating to development and human rights. In order to arrive, that was called for at the Rio summit in 1992, uh, to arrive at a comprehensive international law of sustainable development. The question is, what could be the contours of such an international law of sustainable development? And what could be the contribution of international lawyers? That is the topic of the next section of my lecture. It follows from what we have discussed so far that the development of international law in the field of sustainable development is derived from three chapters of international law. One, international law relating to development. Two, international environmental law. And three, international human rights law. Consequently, principles and rules of each of these three branches feed the development of international law in the pursuance of sustainable development. A number of general and specific principles of international law are at the core of the international law of sustainable development. And in discussing these principles, I would like to take the liberty to report on work conducted in my capacity as rapporteur of the Committee on Legal Aspects of Sustainable Development of the International Law Association. This association, in fact the major professional worldwide association of international lawyers, founded long ago, namely in 1873, had charged our committee with the task of identifying existing and new principles of international law in the field of sustainable development. And after some years' work, this effort resulted in the adoption of an ILA declaration of principles of public international law 
in the field of sustainable development. And this document, this declaration, has also been published upon requests of the governments of Bangladesh and the Netherlands as a UN document in A-57-321, uh, dated 31 August 2002. In carrying out this task, the committee was in the fortunate position to be able to learn from and to build on the work of various other institutions, governmental ones and non-governmental ones. This includes the report by the Brundtland Legal Experts Groups, reports by groups of experts convened by the UN Secretariat in 1995 and on various occasions by uh, the United Nations Environment Programme and by the IUCN, uh, resulting in a draft covenant on environment and development. And also reference can be made to the Earth Charter. The ILA identified seven principles of international law in the field of sustainable development. The first one is the principle of the duty to ensure sustainable use of natural resources. It requires states and peoples to pay due care to the environment and to make a prudent use of the natural wells and resources within their jurisdiction. This is an offspring from the established principle of sovereignty over natural resources, according each state the right to possess and to determine freely the management of its natural resources for its own development obviously within the limits of international law. During recent decades, this has been supplemented by an obligation incumbent upon states to protect not only the environment of areas beyond national jurisdiction, but also their own environment within their own territory. Indeed, resource sovereignty has increasingly been interpreted as giving rise to a series of duties as well, and most notably the duty of sustainable and prudent use of natural resources, protection of biological diversity, and elimination or reduction of the effects of over-exploitation of soil uh, to tackle deforestation, overfishing and pollution. It should be noted that the Stockholm Declaration from 1972 was among the first documents which stipulated that the principle of sovereignty over natural resources must be exercised in an environmentally responsible way. Especially its well-known principle 21 called for the prevention of extraterritorial effects causing environmental damage in other countries or in areas outside the national jurisdiction. This is also reflected in what is now principle two of the Rio Declaration of 1992, with the notable addition of the words and developmental needs in the phrase that all states have the sovereign right to exploit their natural resources pursuant to their environmental and developmental needs. This principle of sustainable use of natural resources is also amply reflected in multilateral treaty law, 
including in the fields of the law of the sea. I referred already to the notion of the maximum sustainable yield in, in natural resource exploitation um, arrangements, uh, for example, the International Tropical Timber Agreement, and in treaties in the field of nature conservation and the environment. The Convention on Biological Diversity provides, in a way, a clear definition of sustainable use. Let me quote. The use of components of biological diversity in a way and at a rate that does not lead to the long-term decline of biological diversity, thereby maintaining its potential to meet the needs of the present and future generations." Unquote. In this way, the principle of sustainable use is closely related to the second principle, the second principle of equity and, and the eradication of poverty perhaps still an emerging one in international law. According to this principle, states must take into account the interests of both present and future generations. The principle of equity is a principle of international law of rather more general nature, enabling the international community to take into account considerations of justice and fairness in the formation application and interpretation of international law. Treaty law refers frequently to equity or equitable principles, both in the environmental field and in the field of the law of the sea. For example, in its provisions regarding maritime delimitation. The principle of intergenerational equity, so equity between the present and future generations, has been well defined by Professor Edith Brown Weiss, eh, reflecting the view that as members of the present generation, we hold the earth in trust for future generations, while at the same time we are the beneficiaries entitled to use it. The Stockholm Declaration referred already to the solemn responsibility to protect and improve the environment for present and future generations, while Rio Principle 2 includes the objective to equitably meet developmental and environmental needs of present and future generations. Intergenerational equity as a principle has found recognition in the law of the sea outer space law, international wildlife law and international environmental law, albeit that here sustainability and preservations are also based on the intrinsic value of nature and fauna and flora rather than on the needs and interests of future generations of humankind and it is welcome that there is respect for the intrinsic nature of nature. However, we also have to conclude that outside these fields, the status of the principle of intergenerational equity is still uncertain. The same certainly goes for the dimension of intragenerational equity relating to members of the current generations of humankind necessitating assistance by the industrialized states to developing states. 
as we discussed earlier, so far intra-generational equity has occupied little ground in international law. By contrast, the third principle of common but differentiated obligations has a firm status in various fields of international law, including human rights law, international trade law and international environmental law. The Rio Declaration reads in part, I quote, in view of the different contribution to global environmental degradation, states have common but differentiated responsibilities. The developed countries acknowledge the responsibility they bear in the international pursuit of sustainable development in view of the pressures their societies place on the global environment and uh, the technologies and financial resources they command. So this was a quote from Rio Principle uh, 7. An obvious example is uh, climate change. Here the rationale for differentiation is twofold. Firstly, it is recognized that so far the bulk of global emissions of greenhouse gases originates in industrialized countries and they should thus bear the main burden for combating climate change. Secondly, developing countries need access to resources and technologies in order to be able to achieve sustainable development. Furthermore, differentiation takes shape even further to, through the recognition of the principle of uh, special needs and interests of economies in transition and least developed countries. The first category, uh, those of uh, economies in transitions, may well be a temporary one with special relevance in the fields of international financial, monetary and environmental law. The category of least developed countries, currently numbering as many as 50, has a somewhat longer history and roots in some other fields of international law as well, including the law of the sea, international trade law and uh, international development law cooperation arrangements. Next, I would like to refer to two key principles of international environmental law. That is the precautionary principle and the principle of public participation. The precautionary principle, or in the words of the ILA, the principle of the precautionary approach to human health, natural resources and ecosystems, is often quoted in general terms, but also more concretely applied. There is an increasing emphasis on the duty of states to take preventive measures to protect the environment, for example through environmental impact assessments. One of the novel features of the Rio Declaration was its call for public participation and access to information and justice. It coincides with the call for more participatory processes in national and international decision-making and with the increased status of human rights. In international environmental law, this has received a certain response, most notably in a treaty concluded under the auspices 
of the UN Economic Commission for Europe in ARUS, the so-called ARUS Convention on Access to Information, Public Participation in Decision Making and Access to Justice in Environmental Matters. The emerging, the emerging international law of sustainable development also embraces good governance, and that is what I would like to mention as a separate principle, good governance including democratic accountability. As discussed earlier, the exact definition of good governance may not be very clear in the parlance of politics and development studies. Yet, as a legal concept, it has found a place among other documents in the EU-ACP cooperation treaties of Lomé and Cotonou, but also in guidelines of both the World Bank and the IMF. The concept of good governance can well be instrumental in integrating the various dimensions of the concept of sustainable development, including global good governance, in the sense of the participation of states, all states, in international lawmaking, in conference diplomacy and in decision making within international institutions, but also through the participation of non-state entities in national and international decision making and in good national governance in the sense of the application of general principles of a constitutional state. In the ILA declaration, it was decided to define the principle of good governance chiefly in a procedural sense. And four important elements are emphasized. First, democratic and transparent decision making and financial accountability. Two, combating corruption. Three, proper procedures and respect for the constitutional state and human rights and also public tenders in line with the WTO code in this area. As with the precautionary principle, the ILA declares that the principle of good governance is also applicable to legal subjects other than states. I quote, non-state actors should be subject to internal democratic governance and to effective accountability, unquote. In this regard, the declaration calls upon the private sector to show socially responsible behavior and to make socially responsible investments as conditions for the emergence of a world market that contributes to an honest distribution of wealth between and within societies. The last principle, the last general principle, I would like to mention is a prominent place in this effort to, uh, to, to further develop the international law of sustainable development, is that of integration and interrelationship, in particular in relation to human rights and social, economic and environmental objectives. Here, inspiration can be sought from various principles of the Stockholm and Rio declarations, the World Charter of Nature, the IUCN Covenant, the Earth Charter, as well as from key multilateral treaties, such as the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UN Climate Change Convention, the Biodiversity Convention, 
the Anti-Decertification Convention, the Agreement on Migrating Fish Stocks, and also the, um, the various documents uh, of the European Union. The integration principle is possibly the most important of all legal principles concerning sustainable development. As a relatively new principle, it recognizes the interrelationship between uh, uh, the reduction of poverty, ultimately uh, poverty eradication, and development, environmental protection, and respect for human rights, and the integrated manner in which the objectives in these areas are tackled, both with respect to the needs of present and future generations. Well, after this review of the key principles in the emergence of an international law of sustainable development, let me try to formulate some uh, concluding observations. In this lecture, we have been able to note that the Brundtland Report of 1987 and the Rio Conference of 1992 have received quite an impressive legal follow-up especially in international environmental law. We have also noted the fact that in recent years, developmental concerns have been given relatively less weight in politics and in international law, even to the extent that there has been a neglect of development in the evolution of international law in the field of sustainable development. However, we were also able to note that the international law of development is not a moribund relic of the past, but still alive, albeit subject to considerable challenges as a result of dominant market economy approaches and new directions as a result of emphasis on human rights, environmental conservation and good governance. Particular concerns are the continued conflicts of interests between developing and industrialized states and the question whether and to what extent developing states have a discretion to determine their own developmental and environmental policies in an era of globalization. My particular mission in my written work and in this lecture was to contribute to the achievement of a balanced and comprehensive state of international law in the field of sustainable development as called for in the Rio Declaration of 1992 and in Agenda 21. We have been able to sketch the contours of an emerging new international law of sustainable development. Some of its cornerstones have a firmly established status. Others are just emerging. The international community has committed itself to far-reaching goals, among others through the Millennium Declaration of the United Nations and basically the eight pledges to ban poverty and promote development and to provide an adequate living standard for all by 2015 through the Millennium Development Goals. Here, international law has a role to play both as a value system consolidating an integrated approach to environment and development and as a concrete regulatory framework 
for cooperation between all relevant actors, developing states, developed states, international organizations, business, civil society and academia.